BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, February 27th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. So, Indre, this week, I got to talk to one of my heroes, Kevin Kelly. He's one of the original Mavericks. Uh, I think he's sort of a rare breed today. He is a college dropout. He then went on to edit the incredibly influential Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, He started the first Hacker Conference, and then he went on to even be on the first episode of This American Life with his uh, stories. But I think he's most famous for, in the early 90s, joining a small team that founded the little magazine called Wired. And he's become one of the most respected long-term thinkers on technology since then. Uh, and more importantly, lately, he's been talking about the culture of technology and technology as its own pillar, where we take into account its agenda and bias as this sort of immutable force that's going through the world. And one thing we talked about in this interview was how he's observed that the internet really wants to track us. There is a ten- there is a feeling right now that we have to work full time to prevent unauthorized tracking, and I'm thinking, you know, I just think that total tracking is inevitable, and what we have to work out, like copying, is some way to work with this. So we want the tracking to be symmetrical. We want to watch who's watching. We want it to be accountable. We want it to, to give us benefits, but we aren't going to be able to stop the tracking. So, Indre, do you think tracking is inevitable? I can't see how it wouldn't be, you know, because it just seems like every industry, every every company wants to track you because they want your information. And so often they can do that without you even knowing it. So, yeah, I take it for granted that I'm being tracked at all times. So I try to behave within the confines of the law. I, I don't. I just don't care. I just accept that I'm going to be attracted, tracked at this point. Uh, but I think this is going to be an interesting debate. Let's uh, let's talk about it uh, more after the show. Absolutely. So with that, let's talk about some science in the news. So this week, I saw an article in the New York Times about the fact that Monica Seles, who, you know, is a, is a child of the 80s and knew her, of course, very well, great tennis player, um, that she was starting to come out and uh, talk about an eating disorder that she suffers from called binge eating disorder. So I have to jump in right there. Binge eating disorder. I saw this ad on Hulu last night. When did that become a disorder? So, uh, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychology and Psychiatric Disorders, uh, in the fourth edition, it was kind of mentioned in the appendix as a kind of potential change for the fifth edition. But now with DSM-5, it is officially a disorder. It's, uh, it's actually the most common eating disorder in adults. 
Uh, so it's actually more common than the ones that we know more about, you know, anorexia nervosa or bulimia. Um, and it interestingly is almost as problematic for men as it is for women. So the incidence rate in the general population is about 2% for men and about 3.5% for women. But the other eating disorders are much more common in women than in men. And so, you know, it, it is now a kind of legitimate, it's been legitimatized by the DSM-5 for whatever that's worth. Uh, it is it is a disorder, but, you know, it's still relatively new. And I think people don't, as you, as you mentioned, really know about it. And so Monica Salas is out there trying to spread the word. And although I'm all for celebrities putting on a human face onto diseases and helping people get help and, and be related to, um, in, from that perspective, there is a darker side, I think, to this particular story. There's a pharmaceutical company that is actually paying for, you know, her appearances for, for, um, a lot of the outreach now that is happening to get this this disease to be more known, more well known. And this is not uncommon. So in general, when a pharmaceutical company has a drug approved, it doesn't matter how rare the disease is, they want people to know about disease first, because they want to start the conversation, people going to their doctors, etc. So it's not uncommon for a drug company to put money behind uh, disease awareness. Uh, but in this case, it's a little bit controversial, because the pharmaceutical companies, it's Shire, and their top selling drug, Vyvanse, has just been FDA approved. It's the only drug that's been FDA approved to treat binge eating disorder. Now remember, this is a disorder that just came along recently, or has been named recently, it doesn't mean it hasn't existed for a while. Um, but the, the, yeah, the nefarious side is that this drug has a high potential for addiction. So it's an amphetamine. It's like, an amphetamine. That's yeah, what it is. It's, it's Liz dexamphetamine is the, is the actual, um, you know, scientific or medicalized name. Um, but the drug was approved um, through a priority approval process, which is much quicker than the usual FDA approval process, because there was no other existing drug to treat this particular disorder. You know, it's it's newly named, um, and so this is this is the controversy. You know, when we have a pharmaceutical company that has a drug that they want to market, ultimately they want they expect this drug to make between two and three hundred million uh, for them just in the treatment of binge eating disorder. And we have a disorder that primarily has a psychiatric um, component that the diagnosis relies relies mainly on self-report, right? So if you look at the diagnostic criteria, people have to report that they binge eat, that they eat more than a, a, you know, a, a healthy person would eat um, in a period of two hours, two times a week. That's kind of the definition. So you have people who are going to be going into their doctor's offices. They're almost coached by the pharmaceutical company about what to say in terms of getting the diagnosis. Uh, and then they're prescribed an amphetamine-based drug that has a high potential for addiction. So the parts of the story that really stuck out to me, and this was a fascinating New York Times article, was sort of twofold. One, I had to reflect on this notion of, of a company doing awareness about a disease that I didn't know existed. And when you when I started reflecting back, like 15 years ago, I didn't know what ADHD was. I'd never heard of that before. I know what fibromyalgia is. Why do I know what that is? Like, there's this notion of, of what is the line between this being, uh, it, whether or not it's a disorder has already been settled. Uh, it's in the DSTM. But why there's a public awareness campaign about it, um, that that was the first thing that unsettled me. The second is that, uh, like with these disorders, I mean, this is a, a psychology issue. Uh, there was a number of psychologists quoted in the in the article that talked about how this might not be the most effective treatment. That actual like psychotherapy, like talk therapy, might be as effective here. But there's this really big campaign to push for a pill. So this is this is the interesting thing. So. Interesting that you mentioned um, ADHD, for example, because Adderall, which is one of the main drug treatments for ADHD, is also a Shire pharmaceutical drug. Uh, so they were also involved in getting people to to uh, to know about ADHD. And of course, there is some controversy in the literature about whether or not ADHD is now being overdiagnosed. And of course, there are some very sad stories uh, of kids who get addicted to Adderall and then have all kinds of problems. And you know, some of these can lead to suicide. So there's some major drawbacks to amphetamine based drugs. So and then and, and you you're exactly right to mention the second issue, which is, yes, this drug showed efficacy in two 12 week trials in a series of moderate to severe patients with binge eating disorder. Um, but 
There is also effective treatments that don't involve drugs. So a lot of the treatments involve psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and so forth. And so, you know, I I haven't been able to compare the actual numbers, but I don't know that this drug is more efficacious, for example, than some of the uh, talk therapies that are available. And furthermore, a lot of the other uh, treatments for this disorder include treating the comorbid conditions, which can often be depression. So, you know, treating them with, with de- depression reducing drugs. But anyway, so it's a complicated story. But I think the, the point that I just wanted to make with this article is that, you know, we have to be, start to be a little more vigilant about how as a society we are promoting a particular disease, which seems to have you know, be a good thing, right? Let's get the word out about this particular disease. But what effects that might have ultimately on society if you have now a whole bunch of new people who are addicted to an amphetamine? I'm incredibly uncomfortable with amphetamines coming back on the market. There is a reason they got pulled off the shelves, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so uh, while I'm not usually sub- suspicious of big pharma in the way that there's a number of um, consir- conspiracy theorists are out there, this is deeply troubling to me on many levels. Um, We're going to have to follow this story. And I think we should have a follow up soon. Yeah, no, I'd actually like to talk to someone um, who's been part of the trial and can tell us or or at least or someone who um, treats people with binge eating disorder and like give us an idea of just how effective the drug might be compared to some of the other treatments. So we will try to talk about that another time. So for my science news story of the week, you're going to be wanting to sit down for this one. Ready? The MIT Self-Assembly Lab came out with a new project. They had released a video about a chair self-assembling in water. Wait, there's an MIT Self-Assembly Lab? This is an incredible lab. And um, it it has done numerous projects that really pose this question, can we make things that make themselves? Wow. Is IKEA running scared or are they running towards MIT? (laughs) You know, I rebut the notion. I have not had any problem putting together IKEA furniture. I think most of our listeners probably haven't either, but I think they probably are. Um, The point of the self-assembly lab is to really think about big picture items like, can you imagine if infrastructure could repair itself? Or could you imagine uh, delivering uh, uh, a drug that would assemble itself in situ? Like, there are some amazing concepts behind this, and we're not far along at all. But what they did with this one that was so different is they broke a chair up, and it was only 15 centimeters by 15 centimeters. Let's not overstate this. None of us are sitting down on this thing. And put four pieces of this chair that were held together by magnets, and it was done in a way that it could only assemble in one one particular way. And they put it in a dynamic environment like water that was moving around. And over time, the chair self-assembled. It was amazing. And we're going to put the video up on our on our Tumblr. Uh, downside, it did take seven hours for it to do so. But it's this amazing visual of what the, the future of studying this idea of self-assembly and self-repair can take us to. It is definitely a mesmerizing video. But I wonder why, why a chair? Why not something like, why, why not a buckyball or, you know, something more sciencey or techy? They need to start at really basic systems to study in these really turbulent environments. So they were looking at something that had only a few degrees of freedom. And a chair re- is like less complex than a be- buckyball. So they need to start there because this notion of, of something putting itself together in the bottom of the ocean or while your circulatory system is going around is a difficult one. Well, we have an ivy tree that's currently caused damage to the foundation of our house. So I'm hoping that someday we can just buy a house that can repair itself when things like that happen. It'd be a lot easier. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with your interview with Kevin Kelly. This episode is sponsored by Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. And it's built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your phone. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an internet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash minds. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash minds. 
At Inquiring Minds, we understand that you are on a journey of lifelong learning, and that's why we're big fans of The Great Courses. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. I recently watched The Signs of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being by Doctor of Psychology Ronald D. Siegel of Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. In The Science of Mindfulness, Dr. Siegel provides interesting insights into how ancient wisdom and traditions, combined with the discoveries of modern science, can help us better deal with everyday difficulties and live fuller, richer lives. The course also delves into the neurobiological effects of mindfulness, as well as the effects of mindfulness on our relationships and health. So for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Kevin Kelly, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's my privilege to be here. So my favorite story about you is your self-described comment that you're a hippie that has somehow stumbled into technology. And I wanted you to give our listeners a little bit of insight into your hippiedom and how that transformed into a real admiration in, of technology. Um, I grew up in the 60s when I was in high school, and I, as a senior, came across the Whole Earth Catalog published by Stuart Brand out here in San Francisco. And um, it changed my life because um, reading through its pages, I became aware of the fact that you could invent your own life. And in part of that, I also realized that um, I didn't really want to go to college and then I probably didn't need to. So uh, after a year, I did try it and uh, decided to drop out and um, traveled the world instead and um, spent most of my formative 20s in Asia, uh, which was in a magical time for many reasons. One, it was sort of the end of an era uh, where large parts of Asia had not really had much contact with the West. And someone like me who had very little money and a lot of time could get to an experience. And at the same time, in part, really simultaneously with it, it was developing and modernizing right before my eyes. And I would come back to a place that had been that was rice fields and was now a factory. And so, um, but also people were lifting themselves out of poverty and I could see that myself. So those two things um, kind of... uh, worked on me and I uh, in Asia was sort of much in tune with the people like say in the Himalayas where I spent a lot of time who had very small amounts of technology of appropriate technology. I didn't own very much. I didn't really want to own very much. Um, And I thought that as little technology as possible was the best way to go. Um, And that changed uh, only later, after I came back, I did work for the Whole Earth Catalog, which, again, I thought was the coolest thing to do in the world. I, w- I want to actually ask you about the Whole Earth Catalog, because sure. that publication uh, changed my life a little bit, too. Uh, I remember the first time I picked up that publication. Do you remember when you saw it the first yeah. time? I was actually at Woodstock. What? New York. Yeah. <laughs> Woodstock, New York, in the bookstore there. There it was. It was like, and I picked it up, and there's this kind of this yellow newsprint, bad printing, a kind of a folky layout, and it was like, boing. There was this sort of bell ringing, or I was the bell ringing. It was just, it was, I was like vibrating at exactly the same frequency, and it was, it was like I just sort of swallowed it, inhaled it, and um, what what about I thought, it? I thought it was. What was uh, it was um, so I was uh, kind of a in my high school I was sort of science nerdy I took every single math and science that my very college oriented high school offered doubled in math and science every year and so I was totally like 
the science tech part, but I also thought I should go to art school. I was kind of interested in the art and the the kind of the softer cultural stuff. And for some, for me, the whole earth, and I was and I was interested in tools. I was collecting mail order catalogs as a kid, and I had my own chemistry lab in my basement, and I had a nature museum that I made when I was even younger using the kids in the neighborhood to help be my collectors and I was making exhibits and stuff. So there was in my own mind, a kind of a combination of science tech and art, which I, you know, I I just didn't see anywhere else except when the catalog, that was that combination of um, do it yourself, scientific concepts, but a kind of arty, an already do-it-yourself take that just spoke to me. It was like, yeah, this is this is what it's about. It's you know, it's maker. It's uh, it's it's the tech culture that we have now in many many ways. But um, it was it didn't exist anywhere else that I could see. So you ended up going to actually work for the catalog when you got back from Asia. Yeah, I did. It was the only place I wanted to work, and I started to – I became their travel guide reviewer, the guy who I, – I, I, I knew travel. It was the only thing I knew about, so I encountered a um, – I encountered some books traveling that were unknown here. They were called Lonely Planet Guides. <laughs> I like so how you nobody, said that, like a blast yeah. from the past, the lonely planet. Right, well, guy. nobody had heard of him here at that time. And I was saying, well, there was, there was, they were self-published in Singapore. And um, I was saying, these are these are fantastic. You should know about them. You, you, you sh- this, is, this is what you want if you want to go to Asia. And um, I was reviewing the, 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 the travel stuff, and then I got involved in uh, – the online world because I was doing a mail order travel business myself and I used uh, Apple IIe connected to a modem to do some typesetting. And then once I got the modem, I discovered that there was this other emerging continent on the other side of the modem. And I started to write about um, the online world as another country. And um, I did a cover story for New Age Journal in 1984 called Network Nation where I was visiting all these different online territories. And um, that got me my job at the Whole Earth uh, when they were started doing the Whole Earth software catalog. And, of course, then we did the Well and Cyberthon and stuff like that. So, so my entry was um, reporting on bulletin boards and places like that as if they were a different country. You were one of the first writers that I can recall writing about technology as if it was this uh, unique thing that had a personality and its own culture that was in addition to like the kingdom of life. Uh, and I want to delve into your perspective about it, but I want to first start by uh, how do you actually define technology? What's mm. your sort of working definition of technology? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, w- I would say that technology is anything produced by a mind so in the largest scale, I would say a beaver dam is technology. And I would say that birds' nests are basically they're they're kind of fabric. They're 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 they're, they're they are like our fabrics in sewing, but a lot more primitive. So things that are produced by a mind are technology in the broadest sense. And that means that a calendar is technology, software is technology, a library is laws are, um, as well as, you know, the physical stuff. And then expanding from there, your view, your writing really opened up this notion that technology has its own personality and it has its own culture, which I think really was sort of what, uh, what wired soon became to uh, to be about the culture of technology. And I was wondering if you could offer a few comments on on what you see technology's personality has evolved into. Yeah. So so um you're right that that Wired was a magazine that I helped co-found and it's not about the technology 
uh, directly. It's about the culture around technology in the same way that you would think that, say, Rolling Stone doesn't really write about music. It writes about the culture of music. And what, um, you know, uh, two or 20 years ago, a couple of day, decades ago, nerds and technology were sort of um, a minor subculture. But now, you know, the technology of culture is our is the mainstream culture. And I, I take a, 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 the view that um, not only does technology have its own culture, but it also has its own agenda, it has its own bias. And my writings are, try to, are trying to uncover what are those biases in technology? How does this sort of bend things toward itself? And an example, the easiest example that I could think of is I would say that sort of technology wants to copy. The internet wants to copy. It's this, it's this huge bias to copy anything that can be copied and anything that can be copied, if it, touch it, if it touches it, it will be copied. And you can't stop the copying of it. You can't have copy protection schemes. And none of those are going to work because it wants to copy. So you have to kind of work with this predisposition, its, its inherent bias to copy things. You have to work with that. And if you want to make money on the internet, you have to sell things that can't be easily copied like trust or immediacy or personalization, embodiment, stuff like that. And so I'm on the kind of the lookout for other aspects of, of this technological world that are biased and there are tendencies or, or, and you know, it, 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 it's things that are inevitable. And these days I've come to a very reluctantly to the conclusion that the internet wants to track us and that we're not going to be Why able- do you say reluctantly? Well, because I'm, I'm, I'm saying basically we're going to enter into total, it's going to totally track us every time, everywhere, and they, we can't stop the tracking. I mean, I, I, it, there, is a ten- there is a feeling right now that we have to work full time to prevent unauthorized tracking and i'm thinking you know i just think that total tracking is inevitable and what we have to work out like copying is some way to work with this so we want the tracking to be symmetrical we want to watch who's watching we want to be accountable we want it to to give us benefits but we aren't going to be able to stop the tracking it's amazing the way you describe this, the copying, the tracking. It's almost like you're describing technology as a force, like one of those physical constants, like it's gravity. It is immutable. So it's how we manipulate it that actually um, uh, leads us somewhere. It, do you see technology as a force? Yeah, I do. I, I, I see it as an extension of the same force that brought us here, which is evolution life and evolution so it's it's the it's the force of evolution accelerated and so is evolution a force and i think yeah i mean if you look at the world kind of in any large scale look at the power of life i mean life is sort of this relentless thing you, we 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 drill as far deep as we have drilled into the earth into solid rock we found life there it's like you can't keep it out it's and it you know, and we know from making antibiotics or anything else that this power for things to mutate and to adapt and to find its way around is like relentless. It's a force. And that is the same force that technology is accelerating. It's just an acceleration of that. Um, we use, instead of things coming to their design and their form through Darwinian evolution is they're now coming through technological evolution where they're being directed and and we are using our minds to direct the evolution so it proceeds faster but it's it's the same force and that's why it's it sometimes you know it, it, that's why it can sort of find its way and, and be relentless this is a, a kind of a strange question to ask about a force uh, but how do you feel about that do you are, are you optimistic that uh that we're adapting that force are you uh hopeful for where that where that force is going to take us yeah i mean it's it's, i feel the same way about it as i feel about life and so i mean you know i always make there's kind of a joke which is that um 
if you if we lived on a planet, you know, for some weird way, we were living on a ball bearing planet that was totally metal and inert and everything. And then there was a, we we're going to have a rocket come in that was filled with life. And it's doing random mutations, <laughs> and it's you know it's unstoppable twenty four hours. It's like you you sort of wouldn't allow life anywhere near you because it's totally out of control. It's totally uh, um, stochastic. You know, it's 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 like um, in, in many ways for a control freak, it's the, the absolute worst thing in the world. Um, and yet we're totally in love with it. We think it's, it's fantastic. It's like how you ask someone, how do they feel about life? What do you think about life? Do you, you, do you like life? Is this a good thing or not? And it's, um, I feel the same way about um, technology. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's made us better as we're living longer. We have our progress is real. One thing I know about spending all my time in Asia and those Himalayan valleys is that, you don't want to live like that. You don't want to go back. You're not going to go back. It's it's everybody takes one way buses from those villages into the cities, which are more futuristic because they have more choices and more possibilities. And you may go back to visit to spark your differences and get new ideas, but you're not going to live there. And you don't because it's better with technology. Technology it increases our circle of empathy. Uh, it makes us longer, more educated. We have um, better lives, more fulfillment, more options. And so, um, uh, yes, uh, I, I, the, what I feel about this force of technology is that it's a force for good. The other thing I've noticed with technology is new identities, new human identities seem to be emerging. Maybe they're just re-emerging from over time. But the one that I've been most fascinated with is sort of a re-emergence of a maker identity of humanity, that I build stuff, that I create stuff. And technology seems to have accelerated the spread of that identity. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Absolutely. And um, you know, there's a kind of a mild reference to this in um, the Whole Earth Catalog, which was, um, again, the first one in 1969. And Stuart, ha Stuart Brand, the, the author and editor, um, made a great line, which to me is a real um, touchstone, which it says, um, we are as gods and have to get good at it. And I think um, we, we are acquiring godlike powers. We are about, I don't know, maybe... 20 years away from making um, machines that will have free will that will be able to make other machines like them and maybe even better than them. And um, we were going to be in a dilemma about what to do about that um, and how to, you know, train them or give them some kind of guidance. And uh, so, so, so I think absolutely, um, this is a new step for us. We're becoming kind of mind parents and making mind children. And so um, we, we're, we're not comfortable. We haven't been comfortable with that identity. And I think um, at the same time we're, we're making these things, we're also being you know, supplanted by them too. And so everything we thought humans could do, uh, we're making machines that can do it probably better. And that, forces us to almost on a daily basis redefine who we think humans are. And so we, we, we're, we're kind of coming up very quickly to the realization that we are remaking ourselves as well as making other things. And we have the big question is, what do we want to be? What, what are humans good for? What, what should we be? And this is, a, this is going to be a permanent identity crisis for the next well, forever, really, because this is this is going to be what we're going to be doing all the time. The thing that actually gives me the most identity crisis is uh, Stuart's project. You referenced Stuart Brand uh, on de-extinction. Like his one of his pet projects right now is to bring back species that have gone away. Uh, because, and the reason it gives me an identity crisis is because uh, to me, he's challenging the notion of time. Uh, to me, in that project. And I find it endlessly uh, fascinating, the discussion around that, even though the, the science is starting to come into focus. Yeah, it's a very bold and, as you say, very disturbing 
project um, because one of the things that we were taught growing up, particularly in the conservation world, which was extinction was forever. And now it's like, well, maybe it's not forever. Um, and so you know, it does seem like a reversal of a, of a time machine. Um, I think that um, we're also making time machines in other ways too. Um, I think in the goodness of time, we'll eventually have a genealogical tree for all the people on earth, at least all the living people to show us how we're all connected together and how we're all connected to people in the past. Um, a AK Jacobs is having a family reunion. He calls it uh, next June. Uh, and uh, his point is that we're all related. Uh, you know, there's only six degrees of genetic difference between him and Obama and George Bush and everybody else. I mean, it's, we're, we're much, much more related than we know. And um, our, as everybody gets your gene sequence, we, we can see not only that small difference, but also see how we're related to each other. And so there's really, um, in the goodness of time, any, anywhere that there's some biological material, we'll be able to actually assemble a a tree showing how we are connected and the steps that we're connected. And I think we can even do that back to uh, people in the past. And that I think is another way we can mess around with time because it brings the past a little bit closer to us. That's going to be one hell of a party. It is. And you're invited by the way, because, well, that's good (laughs) because, (laughs) uh, uh, you're you're one of his cousins, and he calls everybody his cousins now. And I think it's 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 a it's you know it's a little bit of a performance piece, but it actually he actually is having uh, a family reunion for anybody who 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 will come. And I think it's um, I think it's a really powerful idea that we should um, really kind of ramp up and and flesh out because um, I am related to you and not as far away as you might think. One of your other recent projects, and you are a source of endless projects, I've noticed, uh, is Cool Tools, which has been your compendium on some of the best tools you've come across in your life. And I- I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about, A, what a tool is, and and a little bit about this project. So I have uh, the short answer about what Cool Tools is, is that it's a continuation and a ripoff of the whole Earth catalogs. The whole Earth catalogs, which I actually eventually did run and publish after Stuart went on to other things, is a compendium, compendium of um, recommended tools. So there's the only things that are mentioned in it are recommendations. So we recommend tools and then the define tools as a broadest sense as something useful. And um, so a a, a uh, you know. A map can be a tool, a how-to book can be a tool, a crowbar is a tool, um, you can have uh, a web app could be a tool, and or a service. And so um, uh, when the web came along, actually it was doing what the whole Earth Catalog was doing, but the web did it better, and I continued that with a website called Cool Tools, where every weekday for uh, 11 years, 12 years now, we've reviewed one cool tool a day. And I say we, meaning the readers have the users and the editors together. And that's the same model that the whole Earth catalog was created. It was a user-generated version of the web, basically pre-web. And I think cool tools has been going on, as I said, for 11 years. And so I took the best of those recommendations and I put them into a oversized book that was exactly the same dimensions as the whole Earth catalog, but this one was in color, a little better printing. That's got to be a beast of a book. It is. It weighs five pounds. It's when you open it up, it's like the size of a small beach towel, and it is. Uh, there's something really wonderful that happens when you look at it and fall into it. Your brain does something with all these different items on one page, and it begins to make unconscious associations between them. And um, it's very different than looking at a website on your iPhone. So, um, and it had the added advantage that that it was curated in the sense that we went through 
the thousands and thousands of um, stuff that we've done over the years and just took out the best. And so this book um, is full of stuff. There's 1,500 different recommendations in it. And what I emphasize to people is that it's got a lot of stuff you can buy in there. Um, and as you page through this, you see all these amazing, cool things and you think to yourself, oh, I like that. That's cool. Mm, I want one of those. But I'm not trying to encourage people to fill their closet with stuff or their basements and buy more things. The important point is, is that you should know these tools exist. You don't actually need to buy them. In fact, the beginning of the book talks about renting them, where you can rent them or how to borrow them. Um, what kind of stuff can you rent as a tool? Oh, man. You can rent anything. Did you know that you could tomorrow morning rent a bulldozer? It's like you can. They should not rent me a bulldozer. <laughs> I'm just telling whoever rents bulldozers, do not rent me a bulldozer. You can rent, you know, backhoes. You can rent wet saws. I mean, it, it's it's really cool. And of course, and then there's tech shop. There's the whole, um, you know, you can get day pass at a tech shop. And a tech shop for those who don't know, or, or most of them are kind of in cities right now, but they're blooming all over the country and the world. And that is um, a place like a gym where they have every possible tool that you can imagine and you can use it. So you either get a day pass or a monthly pass, a yearly pass or a subscription like a gym and um, you get a little instruction. Then you can use the laser cutter. You can use the water jet. You can use the, uh, 12 foot wide quilter industrial sewing machines whatever it is and um and then there's there's actually uh tool lending libraries that some cities have you need to check in your local place but there are public lending libraries and they lend tools and they're usually more generic fundamental tools like um, a backhoe or a, a you know a plumbing snake or something like that that um, you may not have but could borrow for a day. And then finally, there's your friends. And then there's also websites now that, that do a kind of a peer-to-peer -to -peer tool sharing. So there's no reason necessarily why you need to buy everything. What is important to know is that these are possibilities. And I call the this book a catalog of possibilities, meaning that oftentimes knowing that a tool exists for something will inspire an idea elsewhere. Just knowing that you can do something other times will lead you to try to do something. If you knew that you can cut styrofoam with a hot wire, you can take that excess styrofoam that you get in packaging and you can make cool stuff from it. If you knew that you could, um, uh, you know, have a tool that would, um, you know, make a mold of anything you had that you, you can make a reproduction of it in your, in your own basement, um, very fast that can lead to new ideas about things that you might do yourself. And so I think, um, I suggest that this is a book of possibilities, a catalog of possibilities, including possibilities of self-education or careers or, you know, you can hitchhike around Japan very easily. You you can build your own house for $5,000. You can um, start your own business yourself. You're starting your own corporation with this paperwork. There are so many things that you can do as an individual or a small group. And I'm trying to show you with this book what those possibilities might be. Have you seen themes emerge about what's being created out of these possibilities, um, especially around science? Because I've seen so many of the tools that you're listed have become are important engines for scientific discovery. I, I do. I, 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 and you know, one of the coolest new tools that um, I've used and I recommend in the book and that has been really instrumental in the maker movement that I would like to see more used in science is Kickstarter. I think um, the idea of, citizen science being funded by directly by citizens is extremely powerful and not highly exploited right now but other kind of citizen science tools you know the use of the internet and small things like the 
radiation monitor, monitoring, earthquake monitoring, um, environmental sensors in you know mesh networks. These these are some of the new tools uh, of of kind of harnessing amateurs is is uh, along the lines of the Christmas bird count that bird watchers have done and made a huge contribution to our understanding of um, of birds in this country and elsewhere. I, I, I think these are really going to be very powerful uh, ways to do citizen science. You still use the term amateur, and I'm wondering if you see a blurring of the line between amateur and professional uh, in this in this day and age with the the connections that are rising out of technology and the and the set of tools that we have to operate with. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it's uh, the, the I think this the rise of the century of the amateur, which. It's good for amateurs, but it's actually a little scary for the professionals. I mean, we see this in photography, where um, everybody is a photographer now. I mean, I, I, it's really I, I, I'm trying to tell my kids how <laughs> it's really hard to explain. But when I was photographing, when I was 21 in Asia, the norm for most people, you know, and uh, was that they would have a, a brownie camera and they would take one roll of film a year for the family. And then you, they would get this roll of film process back, which you had to send to Rochester, New York. There was only one place that would develop it. And you would get back and on that roll would be like, you know, be like a couple pictures from Easter and a couple pictures from uh, how, you know, the summer vacation and a couple pictures from Halloween. I mean, there were literally like a, all the pictures for a year on 24 exposures. And I was in Asia taking, I had, I would take two rolls of film a day which is 70 pictures a day. And I would come back and I would tell people that, or they would hear about it and they would be in utter disbelief. They could not imagine how anybody could take 70 pictures a day. And um, so, so, so photography was just very esoteric, very uncommon phenomenon or, or impulse or whatever it is. And, um, uh now the most you know unthinking teenager is the amateur is taking more pictures than the than a professional was uh 30 years ago so so that we we have the rise of the amateur what we don't have is sort of the continuation of the professional in the sense that the amateurs are taking as we know from flicker or 500 pixels or any of these things, I think collectively everybody takes, everybody's better than anybody. So, so then this, this is this, I mean, a professional is a professional photographer takes better pictures than the average amateur, but all amateurs take better pictures and collectively than a professional. And so that's the, that's the dilemma is that if you have the pool of everybody, you're going to get a better picture than just one professional but of course, the average professional will be better than the average amateur, and so, yes, amateurs are are taking over. But then the real question is is like you know, is there any room for for, for professionals? And and that's that's you know, same thing with writers, musicians, and eventually scientists. Yeah, in any creative space, that's going to be an emergent issue. Yep. And one thing I've noticed is with the the acceleration of technology the advent of of so many tools and the availability of so many tools that the cost for me to enter different spaces has gone way down whether it be money or just uh, access to information but the rate limiting step still for me as an individual has always been time yep and do you see that changing at all no i don't with any of these creative outlets i i i don't at all and and um I think that is something even as a young person I kind of grokked and realized um, was that um, for most endeavors, like say even traveling or science or anything, um, you can get something done if you have a lot of time or a lot of money. And if you can only have one of those two, it's actually better to have a lot of time than a lot of money because that is that is actually in this world of abundance, that is the scarcer 
resources is our attention and um i think it will be much more formative so if you when you're young you actually have a lot of time but don't know what what an incredible asset you have Um, and i think the fact that young folks will spend 50 hours learning a a video game or something is actually an asset because you 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 um, they they have that ability to devote a lot of time to to something that someone else may not. And so um, I, I, I do agree with you that the tools kind of lessen the barriers to, to, make, to make it easier for those who don't have a lot of money to, to enter. And I think that's really, really fantastic. And I think, in fact, science is driven mostly by the invention of tools. I go along with um, Freeman Dyson, who who sees the history of science is mostly a sequence of invention of tools like, you know, microscopes, telescopes, uh, atom smashers, um, you know, things that allow us to see and measure things that we could not before. And um, I tend to, to agree that in a practical terms, science is really driven and technology by the tools that we invent. And so if you want to have a lot of impact, um, invent some new tools. So in the interest of uh, maximizing the time of our listeners so they can go create some new possibilities with some new tools, uh, I think we're going to stop there. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin Kelly. I was honored that you invited me and I had a blast. Thanks for the great questions. Kishore, that was one of those interviews where you you had me nodding and smiling and laughing and thinking very deeply about some of these things. So congratulations, really well done. Um, but one thing that uh, really kind of stuck in my mind was this notion that he has about what is technology. And, you know, I've recently been asked to give a talk at a little conference called Music and Tech. And so, you know, I'm a classically trained musician. I don't use any tech when I perform, um, except, you know, maybe as a uh, you know, part of the set piece or whatever, and if I'm doing an opera, but when I'm on my own on a stage with my chamber music group, there's no amplification. There's there's like zero technology. And I was thinking, like, what am I going to say at this conference about music and tech? It's not really what I do. Uh, and then the fact that he had said that things that are reproduced by a mind are technology, like that, opens a whole new uh, area. The thing that kind of blew my mind when I stopped to think about it was this notion of evolution was a driving force for the advancement of. Ma- of of species on this planet uh, for a long period of time. And now he's saying technology is that force that is replacing evolution. That burned my brain a little bit. And, you know, I think that he's right because evolution acts on a much uh, longer timescale, right? And ultimately, yes, you know, technology is part of our evolution, right? So you could argue that's part of natural selection. It's just acting in a different way. But in in another way, you know, it is that the pace at which things are changing seems to be much faster now. Uh, And, you know, but, but he has some really interesting insights, too, about this notion that, you know, you, you have to sell things on the internet that can't be copied, like trust. <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting comment. I, lo- I like that. I think he's emphasizing what YouTubers have known for a long time. It's about the relationship with the audience that's special. It's not the content itself. And he's capitalizing on things that uh, I think um, I've known subconsciously for a long time. Like when I look at my consumption patterns on the internet – it is stuff like I listen to Radiolab because that they created a relationship with me that uh, no other podcast does. Like it, it takes me somewhere emotionally, and that's something you can't replicate. That is a trust relationship, uh, and the things that uh, go away on the internet for me are sites that I just have a consumer perspective on that is replicated by somebody else. Somebody yeah. else does it better. Or, MySpace, exactly, or replaced. You know, 
I, maybe it's because I've been listening to too much Tim Ferriss lately, but I've tried to outsource as much of my life as possible these days. You know, I want to spend time with my son. So anything that I feel someone else can do for me, I like outsource it. And I'll be the first one to do that. So he did that with the Cool Tools book. So every image in that book, he would send off to uh, a company in India to actually do all the Photoshop work on, and they would send it back to him. Like all of his transcription he sends away. Do you do that? The- I do do that. Yeah. So I, I'm, I mean, not probably not as much as he does. But I try to do that now. Yeah, any of my transcription, I I work with a company called Odesk that you know does it. And uh, and and recently, I had to create a poster for this uh, concert that I'm giving next Friday. Which, by the way, our, all of our listeners are welcome to join in on. It's in San Francisco, Friday, March sixth at eight p.m. It's free at the concert hall at the Conservatory of Music, and I'll be talking about the brain and music and giving a performance as well. But in any case, I had to create a poster for this event, and I'm terrible at creating posters. So usually, I hire a graphic designer, but that takes time and I was a bit under the gun. So I, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about there's a couple of these websites where you can go and you pay some money and they ba- they basically set up a competition between designers. And you know, I'm sure people have opinions about how those are, but I also feel like here I am, you know, paying money for the design, so at least I'm not stealing the design from someone else, right? Um and I made me wonder whether or not any of these designers on the other end really are just robots. Like, and I'm just giving them copy and I'm giving them an idea. And like, do they just do, can they just just have AI do it? Like find an image search, you know, pick a font, pull it together and create a poster. Or is there actually a human being on the other end? It made me think about it. There's got to be a human being on the other end, right? We haven't. I mean, they gave a name to the human being, but the name and the email address were so starkly different. Like the name was Giovanni, but the email address was like, looked like some kind of Serbian thing. So I don't know. It was, it made me wonder if it wasn't a bot. The two things that really struck with me coming back to the Kevin Kelly conversation is this notion of what we're talking about here is time has become the commodity that we're really trading in. Right now, it's the limiting factor, uh, not the speed of technology, not the how close we are. Like That's inevitable in some way. And uh, that really struck me as as being kind of a funny thing to hear like a technology futurist say is like, oh, the thing that is actually the thing to be concerned about is your time. And not only that, but for this futurist, for this, you know, founder of Wired magazine, for him to say, I'm related to you, I was just like, there's the hippie. I see the hippie right there. We have to come back and talk about privacy, though, which we talked about at the top of the show, uh, because his notion of the internet tracking us, and that's an inevitability. I think that is a monstrous issue that's up right now. I mean, Ed Snowden did a AMA just this week on Reddit. Uh, talking about this. And my first question to you is, uh, is really, do you think this changes your perspective on that discussion we're having with with Ed Snowden about people tracking us and the transparency at which they track us? Yeah, I just I, I mean, I, I guess I just don't I'm more pessimistic or more cynical. I just don't think that you will ever really know who is tracking you. And, and, you know, I I feel like this, this assumption of privacy has gone out the window in the last few decades. You know, I, I just don't believe in it anymore. And so I'm coming from the perspective that I'm always assuming that I'm being tracked or I'm being watched or what have you, but that there's so much data out there that unless I'm doing something really interesting, who cares? I'm a pretty boring person, so I'm not worried about being tracked. But what struck me is when Kevin said there's a symmetry to being tracked. That's what we should be concerned about. Uh, what I heard in that message is uh, the people tracking us. Like, I wonder if they could be if they could be transparent about how they're tracking us and what they're collecting from us. And I think that's really what is important to me about the Snowden debate. It's not so much that I. C- I don't really care that the NSA is tracking us. Uh, I have to say, I care that they're hiding what they're tracking about us, that they're not being forthright that they are. I mean, that would change everything for me. I, I guess I I don't see it as such a big problem because I I just assume, again, I just assume it's out there. I mean, you know, I... I, and I don't want to be told and reminded all the time that I think would be creepier. You know, I mean, I know Amazon is tracking me because I see advertisements for products that I looked at Amazon when I go to other websites. Like, I see it. But do I want a little pop up thing saying, I'm tracking you a little little eyeball that says I'm watching you all the time? That's kind of creepy. I think that would be bad user <laughs> interface. But I don't know. I, I feel the other way a little bit. I think I would like a uh, 
an, an arena where people are a little bit more forthright. Maybe it's in like a terms of service where they just, just say it somewhere where that information resides. And it doesn't have to be um, explicit on everything that I'm doing, but I think I would just like that level of knowledge because frankly, like I, when I turned on my Android phone and Google asked me the first time, you know, can, can we track your behavior? I'm like, hell yes, that's going to make my life better. But I at least had the option of saying yes or no. I had some information that this was going to be happening. I get, I totally see where you're coming from. And I, th- I do think that that's a good idea. Um, and so maybe I can find some way to outsource all the terms of service that I would have to read <laughs> as a result. But that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. Now, you can track us through our website, motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. But we've also had some requests from listeners for show notes. So to that end, we have started a Tumblr. So you can find us at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, tracking that you do of us, or anything else you'd like to Inquiring Minds at climatedesk.org. And once again, today's show is sponsored by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash minds. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash minds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.